0: Welcome to the Books of Titans podcast, where I seek truth in the world's best books. I'm your host, Eric Rostad, coming to you from the beautiful Books of Titans studio in Franklin, Tennessee. My goal is to read 52 books per year and share what I'm learning. I'll talk a bit about each book, tie ideas together from a variety of genres, and share the one thing I always hope to remember from each book. Today, I'm going to do something a little different, and I'm going to cover two people that I've read about this year. After reading Robert Caro's books about Lyndon B. Johnson, and then later about Robert Moses, I thought it'd be fun to take a step back and talk about the similarities and the differences between these two men. The books that I read by Robert Caro about these two people were deep dives into the issue of power. Uh, In Robert Moses' case, it was urban power in New York City, and in LBJ's case, it was national power. So I read the four book series about LBJ first, then I read Robert Caro's book about work, about his writing style, and that one's called Working. And then I, after that, I read the book about Robert Moses. I wasn't planning on reading Working or the Robert Moses book, but after reading the LBJ series, I just became absolutely fascinated with, with Caro and wanted to read more. So as I was reading The Power Broker, which is the one about Robert Moses, I just kept writing over and over in the margin, like LBJ, like LBJ, like LBJ. So I I just, I, st- I started seeing all these similarities between Lyndon B. Johnson and Robert Moses. So this episode will largely be a collection of those instances where I was writing like LBJ in the margins. And I just found it fascinating how similar these men were. And I, I was wondering how amazing it must have been for Robert Caro to see these common themes in what Caro has spent uh, probably 50 to 60 years of his life at this point uh, with the, writing about these two men. It must have been amazing for him to see all these similarities. But I think it, it's also going to show us common ways in which power is obtained and then common themes dealing with power. Also, I think what this, what this looking into the similarities, what it'll do is help us in our own lives as we come across people who are, are like this. So I spent 106 days reading these five books, the four about LBJ and the one about Robert Moses. That was 170 hours over those 106 days. So I spent a lot of time reading about these men this year. And and I started seeing these common themes and and common ideas and, and even common paths. And what's really fascinating is both of their careers ended in the same year. So Their lives didn't mix all that much. I mean, they did meet uh, in their lifetimes, uh, these two men, but their careers ended, both of them ended in the fateful year of 1968. So here it goes. I'll I'll start with the similarities, and then I'll go into the differences, and then I'm going to close out with the one thing that I just cannot get out of my head about these two men. just a quick note, if you would like to support this podcast, you can do so by helping me purchase books for my 2022 reading list. Yes, I already have it chosen. I have the 52 books that I want to read next year, and it would help me out greatly if, uh, if you'd be interested in, in purchasing any of those. So I'm going to link in the show notes. I created an Amazon wish list, and you can go right there. It's the version that, I'm, that I, I would like to read, and uh, you can just go there. And, and purchase a book for me and it will be sent directly to me, man, that would make me happy and that uh, would really help out this project. Now back to the episode and to the similarities here first. Well, I think the most important similarity between these two men is just how you, early you saw in both of their lives who they were. Uh, so for example, in LBJ, you see even his neighborhood games like he he if he wasn't winning he would take the ball like he he was the kid that brought the ball to the game and this is poor town and uh he was the the kid that had the ball so if he didn't like how the game was going he would take the ball and leave and so no one else could play the game after he left. You saw him in high school and in college, just doing really demented things to his classmates to the point where in college, where this is during the depression, where it is very hard to go to college, to have the the money to go to college. People left college so they would not have to be there with LBJ. They left college because they could not stand to be there with this at the same time as LBJ. That is the same man that you saw as president, and there was not a whole lot of change in between that. Robert Moses he wrote a thesis paper that pretty much outlined what he did for the next forty four years. It was right there in his thesis paper. How many journalists you think went back to, to LBJ's childhood and 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 learned those stories? How many journalists you think actually read Robert Moses's thesis paper? Not a whole lot, if if any, and so. It kind of came as a shock later on, like, oh my gosh, LBJ, he's got power. Look what he's doing, and Robert Moses. Look, uh, look at look at the the bad stuff going on here. So then, that's the 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 question: Is it does power corrupt? And absolute power corrupt absolutely? Is that is that how this goes? Like, once you get power, that's when the things happen. That's when you get corrupted. Or was this there from the beginning, and then? Did this just manifest itself? Did, did, did people just finally start to see it once they were on the bigger stage? And that's what Robert Caro says happens here. Robert Caro does not believe in that dictum of power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Robert Caro says, no, power reveals. And so what you saw when these men had their absolute power or as close to absolute power as, as you can have, what you saw was there from the beginning if you were willing to look. And that has huge ramifications for us. Uh, we, we can look at people who, once they get to levels of power, say, oh man, I, we didn't see this coming. But what if you had looked? What if you had read what they had written before? Or you looked at how they voted? You looked at their actions as opposed to what they were actually saying. Could, could, you, could you see some of this stuff coming? So that was one of the, the, just the biggest, I mean, when you write four books about one person, and that first book, uh, the majority of it is about LBJ's early life, you, you see there, there's not much difference between the 15-year-old LBJ and the 50- and 60-year-old LBJ. That was a really fascinating similarity between between these two men. Another was their management styles, how how they worked with those under them, and and it, you you almost felt like you were reading about the same person when it came to this. So Carol makes the comment about Robert Moses, or, or somebody somebody that worked for uh, Robert Moses made this comment. He said he worked all of us hard, but he worked harder himself. He worked himself harder. And so you saw that with both LBJ and Robert Moses that he just demanded so much of those under him, but everyone that worked for him said that that Robert Moses and LBJ worked harder than than any of them. Both of them would make you feel like you were a part of something big that you that they just provided this tremendous sense of purpose. And many of the people, it, despite the the conditions of working for these. These men, they looked back at it fondly, like a a really good and important time of their lives. They they felt like they were working for something big by working for LBJ or Robert Moses. And what these men did is they brought out the best of those that worked under them. But they required one thing, and that was absolute loyalty, especially LBJ. LBJ would just, if if you were not absolutely loyal, you were you were out. And so you, as you can imagine, some, some people that worked for, for both of these men broke under those demands. I mean, to where you had grown men crying, you had uh, men becoming alcoholics just from the pressure of having to work under these, these men. So their management styles were, were demanding, uh, yet at the same time, people felt a strong sense of purpose and, and just delight in, in what they were doing. There was uh, another similarity: is they they had both of, of of LBJ and Robert Moses had access to powerful people who who became mentors in a way. So for LBJ, two really stand out in that were Sam Rayburn and FDR, uh, two two men that LBJ looked up to, and that um, that that opened a lot of, of pathways for LBJ. For for Robert Moses, he had a friend in Governor Al Smith and then in LaGuardia later on. And then someone who worked for Al Smith, Belle Moskowitz, who she was kind of the brains behind the operation. And it was really fascinating to read about her because she kind of helped Robert Moses go from... This idealistic person to more of a pragmatic person. so at at the start, he he had this idealism going, and he wanted to change things for the good and all that. But uh, Bell really helped him see like the idealists don't really make it. It's the people who know how to get things done. They are the ones that make it. And so he he helped she helped him along that. That path, but these these access to these powerful people and, and mentors was a was a, a, a strong similarity in, in both of their of their lives. Hiding information, both of them were were masters at this. Uh, there's a, a case in in the power broker where Moses printed up transcripts of a particular hearing and he left out all of his damaging admissions from that transcript, but but printed all of the other things from that hearing. The, the most famous one on the LBJ side is the yearbooks. So this was, uh, it was either the high school or, or college yearbooks. And uh, Robert, Carroll really talks about this in his, his book, Working. And this was a huge thing for him. This, this, this opened up a lot of, of insight into LBJ in that Robert Carroll was was going back and looking at these yearbooks. And, uh, and somebody said, have you seen the yearbooks? And Robert Carroll said, yeah, I mean, I've I've got them right here. Look, uh, there's there's nothing really bad about LBJ. And this person said, well, you haven't seen the actual yearbook then. And what had happened was LBJ and and some of his friends had removed all of the, there's a bunch of negative things about LBJ in these yearbooks and LBJ and his friends had removed them, but they didn't get to all the yearbooks. And so some yearbooks existed with that, that content still there. And so Robert Carroll did not even realize it when he's looking at these yearbooks that pages had just been ripped out and stuff carefully removed. And so when he saw the full yearbook next to the one where content had been removed, he knew this was something big because that takes a lot of work, a lot of planning, a lot of tracking down all the yearbooks out there to get that information out of the yearbook. Just and, and think about that. I mean, LBJ doesn't know he wants to be president. He he's he has that ambition since he's he's young, but at that point he doesn't know that he's gonna be president or senator. And so to be pulling that content out of the yearbooks at that time in his life, that is that that's a huge insight into to the man. So you you see this uh you see this quite often with, with these with with both of these men is is this desire to hide information that uh, as you look back at their lives, you see how it's hidden and you see the actual what happened and, and it offers a lot of insight. Both men also had deep friendships with the media, uh, both LBJ and Robert Moses, not, not just with the media, but like the heads of the major newspapers. And, and that was just really interesting to see. I mean, Robert Moses, he would, he would prepare press releases and hand them to the New York Times and they would basically just reprint them. The, the New York Times would just reprint what Robert Moses gave them. Quite a quite a bit of influence. Uh, another similarity is their impact on the government. So with LBJ, that's that's obvious. If you read the third book of the series, Master of the Senate, he became the Master of the Senate. And the Senate was not supposed to have a master. It was set up a very particular way so that it would not ever have a master. And yet here comes LBJ, and he is the first person in history to really become a master of the Senate, something that should not have been possible. With Robert Moses, you see this where uh, Robert Carroll points out, you know, we can look at at the buildings, we can look at the bridges uh, of what Robert Moses accomplished in New York, but something that's kind of hidden is his achievement in reshaping the machinery of New York's state government and this was something he did before he did a lot of the building projects so he wasn't he wasn't just a, a master builder he wasn't just a, the the engineer and, and the the uh, the legal genius he was someone who who looked at the government as a whole and looked for ways to to make it more efficient and it it, it his work in that had a huge impact in the shaping of the New York government. Both men were completely out of touch with the general populace. Uh, Robert Moses actually ran for governor of New York, and he just had such disdain and contempt for the public that it just, it was so obvious that, that he did not win the vote. Like he, he it, it was bad. And, you just read about all these cringeworthy moments for from both of these men and LBJ too. Like as he's as he's campaigning, he just has a general disdain for the people. I mean, he 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 wants their votes, he needs their votes, but he there's there's just this level of being separated from the people that cringeworthy is the the best word I can think of as you're reading about these things and and with both both of these men, uh, Robert Moses was he kind of. Build himself as the non-politician, uh, and yet he had more control and more power than most politicians, uh, including governors and mayors. But uh, but yeah, just this this kind of contempt for the the public. Uh, another similarity is that they both had access to purse strings, and they both had access to money, and they used that money to gain power, and so. Robert Carroll highlights this quite often in, in showing how economic power can lead to political power. So for LBJ, uh, he, one, one way that he came to power and, and became noticed was that before he, w- he ever had a, a really good position, he was raising money from Texans and then handing it out to the Democratic candidates. And so they kind of became indebted to him because this was a time where money was scarce and all of a sudden LBJ just has all this money coming in from, from people in Texas, from uh, wealthy people in Texas. And it's, it's funneling through LBJ. And so he gets to determine who gets this money for their campaign. And it had a big impact. And so he became the money man and that led to political power for him. Robert Moses, same thing. As he's getting more and more power, he is able to hand out lucrative construction contracts for the building that is happening all around New York City as well as New York State. And so that comes with a lot of power. You can give one contract to a particular company over another company if maybe you like them more or maybe they give you something or... You can start, you know, kind of moving the levers there to to get things done how you want them because you have access to the money. Uh, I, I mentioned this before, where LBJ would would take the ball and go home. Uh, both men had this tendency. So LBJ, when he was young, if he didn't like how the game was going, he would he would take the ball home and and, and go. Uh, Robert Moses did the same thing, but, but also as an adult. And so if somebody didn't do what he wanted, he would just, he would kind of throw this tantrum and, and threaten to quit. And he would even start walking out of the room and, and no, we can't let him quit because you know, he's doing so many great things for New York. He's doing so many great things for the city. You can't let this man quit. So like he would throw these tantrums to get what he wanted and it, very childlike behavior. But both men, they, they, they did forms of this throughout their their lives Another similarity, both men viewed World War II as an irritating interruption to their plans. And this was both, both men. They, uh, the war was just, uh, you know, for their ambition and what they were going for, this really derailed things uh, in, in, in multiple ways. Another thing was hospitality. They used hospitality to to gain power. So LBJ would have people at his ranch, um, you know, just live it up with with these with these people, and that was a another way that he generated power. Uh, same with Robert Moses. Um, and you know, with with hospitality, you can invite people. You can make sure some people are not invited, and that can kind of, you know, who's who's in the in crowd and who's in the out crowd. Uh, it all it all comes into play, and in just another way that both of them used power another way is that they both participated in stolen elections one with Robert Moses was when he was doing something with Jones Beach and it, he uh, he rigged things to where the election was well it was stolen and then uh, of course the famous one with LBJ the 1948 Senate race where he clearly uh, stole that election that led to him getting to Washington and uh, you know he probably wouldn't have been president had he not Stolen that election in 1948. Interesting connection point between these two men is uh, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and they both knew him. Uh, LBJ was 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 quite close to him. Uh, Robert Moses had some run-ins with him, but yeah, FDR is kind of a, a neat connection point between these two men. Even though LBJ and Robert Moses didn't meet all that much together, I mean they they did meet, but. Um, FDR was kind of a a neat connection point between those. Final thing I want to highlight in this section is just how much their power generated from working insanely hard. You know, it it it's kind of fun to think that just random events got these people in power. And, you know, that's how that's how it works, is people just get lucky in life and, and all of a sudden they're in power. But you read what these men did, what what went into how they got to where they did, and there were a lot of bad things that, that went into that, but they also worked extremely hard, and I thought it'd be fun to just highlight some of their working styles, because it, it's unbelievable how these men worked. So let's start with Robert Moses. Uh, he, says, he says that um, Robert Carroll says this, his life became an orgy of work. Even so, there was never enough time. Minutes were precious to him. To make sure that he had as many of them as possible, he tried to make use of all those that most other men waste. So listen to this. He had always worked in his car while traveling. Now he turned the big Packard limousine into an office. With Howland sitting beside him, on the rear seat, three other engineers swiveled around on the jump seats and two other crammed in beside the chauffeur. He held staff meetings in the limousine, while another limousine trailed behind so that when Moses was finished with his men, he could drop them off and they could be driven back to Belmont Lake while he continued on to his destination. Reading a little bit later on, he says, wanting Miss Tappan available, this was his uh, his stenographer, Wanting her available whenever he needed secretarial assistance, Moses placed at her disposal a car and three chauffeurs, so his stenographer had three chauffeurs, who worked around the clock in eight-hour shifts. On many mornings, she arrived at his home at 7.30 a.m., her car pulling up behind that of Holland, who was picking up Moses' night-written memos, and she would get into Moses' limousine so that he could start dictating the minute he stepped in. As she drove with him, her her car followed behind so that whenever he was finished with her, she could get out of his car, step into her own, and speed back to Belmont Lake or 302 Broadway to parcel out the work among the subordinate secretaries while he, chauffeured by one of his three chauffeurs, continued on to his destination. Lunches were a constant source of irritation to Moses. He hated to interrupt his work for them. Now he began refusing invitations to lunch. Anyone who wanted to dine with him came to his office and a secretary would run out for sandwiches. Now let's learn about his phone calls. Finally, he had a new telephone setup installed. Under it, there were many lines into his secretary's office, but only one from hers into his. On the single telephone that remained on his desk where there were no buttons. If he was talking on that telephone, all other callers, with the single exception of Governor Smith, for whom all other calls were dropped, had to wait until he was finished. He was very pleased with this stratagem, and he used it for the rest of his life. The five governors who succeeded Smith and the five mayors of New York City for whom Moses would work had to get used to being told that Mr. Moses would have to call them back. He could not talk at the moment because his line was tied up. End quote. That limousine thing is, is just unbelievable. So he's he's in a limousine. He's, he's dictating everything to the people in that limousine. When he's done, they, they'll just pull over to the side so that they can get out, get into their own limousine. He continues on to where he's going. They go back and they get all the all the instructions back to all of his other employees. His stenographer, kind of his in in his kind of his head secretary has her own vehicle, has her own crew of 3 chauffeurs. Robert Moses has his own crew of 3 chauffeurs and he's just switching cars to be able to do different meetings as he's going to destinations that he is he's going to. He just did not waste a single minute of any day. And yes that is crazy, but he got, he got so much done in his life. And that's just, a, it, it just blew me away to read about that working style. I want to read one other thing about, uh, about Robert Moses's style. And, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to read a, a short section here, but you give a problem to Moses and overnight, he's back in front of you with a solution, all worked out, down to the last detail, drafts of speeches you can give to explain it to the public, drafts of pa- press releases for the newspapers, drafts of the state laws you'll need to get passed, advice as to who should introduce the bills in the legislature and what committees they should go to, drafts of any city council and board of estimate resolutions you'll need, if there are constitutional questions involved, a list of the relevant precedences, uh, precedents, and a complete method of financing it all spelled out. He had solutions when no one else had solutions, end quote. So this this is the, the key thing. This is the thing I highlighted in that episode about the power broker that, that stood out to me the most, is that when Robert Moses uh, pitched a job, he had everything ready. And I mean everything. And so what are you going to do as the mayor? If you have to make a decision between a number of projects— and Robert Moses has everything sp- spelled out for you. He's got the financing ready. He can get started. He's got the machinery ready. He'll he'll start digging tomorrow morning if you get, if you okay it. Everyone else that's coming to you is just giving you blueprints. They haven't gone through the the legal precedent. They don't know if if it is actually possible if they can get it approved, and they certainly do not have people ready to start digging the next morning. Who are you going to choose? And I just, I, I loved that about Robert Moses because he was so well-prepared. He had thought through everything and that ensured that he would get the job. Now, LBJ, the, the thing that that was really impressive about his working style, and again, they, they both had very similar styles, but um, let me read a, a small section about, about LBJ's style here. For Lyndon Johnson, the mystique of the male went beyond the political. He had always done every job as if his life depended on it, believing that if you did just absolutely everything you could do, you would succeed. And he tried to perform perfectly every minor task that no one else bothered with. Doing everything one could do with the mail meant answering every letter, and that was what he insisted his office must do. And not only must every letter be answered, he told Latimer and Jones it must be answered the very day it arrived. There was no escape from the mail. Small bundles meant not less but more work for the two young men. It was important to get mail, Jean Latimer explains. That was the most important thing. You had to have people writing you. So if you got if, if the mail got light, we had to generate mail. Any day that we didn't get 100 letters was a terrible day, and we had to do something about it. Letters were solicited by scanning the weekly newspapers more closely than ever for any conceivable good or bad news that that might justify a message of congratulations or condolence, a message in in which the congressman would solicit a reply by asking, in Latimer's words, How am I doing in Washington? What government programs would you like to see passed? That kind of question. After typing came the retyping. No letter was going out of the office unless it was perfect, Johnson said, and to ensure perfection, he read every single one. And if he didn't like a letter, Latimer said, he would just make a huge angry slash marks across it. No explanation would be vouchsafed. You had to figure out what was wrong. He wouldn't tell you. A single error in spelling or punctuation, and the letter was slashed. He had no compunction at all about making you write them over. Even if you had to stay past midnight, Jones says, you handed him 50, 60 letters, and he might mark out every one of them, end quote. So that... Lyndon Johnson, the the first role he gets, he's working for a a senator, and he what he does is he answers the senator's mail. This particular senator was, uh, he loved the game of golf, and he spent a lot of time golfing instead of answering his constituents' letters. And so LBJ comes in as his assistant, and he starts answering those letters. And you see this throughout LBJ's career. He would do he would do things like that, and oftentimes it it related to the mail and answering that mail. And, and the level of detail that went into that, but it was a deep sign of respect. Your constituents are writing to you. They have problems. They have needs. This helped LBJ know what his constituents needed, what their problems were. And it, 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 it gave him deep insight that other people missed just because they didn't even consider it. And LBJ took it to the extreme. I mean, he, he had two people working with him, just working across the clock to answer these letters, something that a lot of people thought was was below them. He, he took it to the end. These men, LBJ and Robert Moses, worked so hard that they both worked themselves into the hospital. They worked themselves into exhaustion. They worked themselves into health problems, uh, with LBJ even, even having a, a heart attack. So maybe it's not uh, uh, laudable, the the intensity of the work, but the way they approached it, uh, there's a lot to learn. And it was interesting just to see how similar their approaches were and how those working under them viewed the men that they worked for. So now let's go into a few of the differences. Well, for their childhoods, their their childhoods were, were quite different. LBJ, for a time, uh, was in good standing. Uh, his father was a politician and very well respected, but then his father made a poor decision in business and bought a farm on land that was not good land. And they went bankrupt and were in debt for the rest of their lives to where the, they became the stock of their small town. This is small town Texas in the hill country of Texas. That was not a pleasant thing to be in poverty, to have family members have to, to bring you food because your family is so poor. Uh, and and to have done that in a very public way in a small town Led to tremendous humiliation in something that LBJ always tried to disassociate himself from, uh, especially disassociate himself from his father, but to disassociate himself from that painful past. Robert Moses, on the other hand, grew up in privilege. He grew up uh, quite wealthy and and with a pretty haughty attitude, and his his uh, I mean he he got it from his mother. And so when I, when I look at these two men's lives and the, and the differences in how they grew up, what's interesting is that what LBJ became would have, would have horrified his parents. His parents were the idealists, and since they had that fall from grace, LBJ's lesson was that— idealism is bad. You have to be pragmatic. You just have to get things done. And so the idealist is actually dangerous. You need to have the pragna- pragmatist. And so LBJ viewed himself as the pragmatist who could get things done. And and his father was also honest. And so LBJ looked at that honesty and he looked at his mother's idealism and love of, of literature and, and books. And he looked at that and denounced it he did not want that and so he took the exact opposite lesson what his parents would have wanted but when you look at Robert Moses his mom would have been proud he he acted like his mom did and there there wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been a shock for him that would not have horrified his mother because that's how his mother was kind of the this haughty attitude this I, I I'm I'm better than the rest of mankind attitude. And, and Robert Moses had that throughout his his life. Uh, another difference was in their use of, of law. Uh, and this is kind of a, a slight difference, but but LBJ, his, his purpose was to write things. He, he made the comment he wants to write things in the book of law. And so that what he was talking about in that statement was about civil rights. He wanted to get it written in the books of law, so that that it would be from that point forward. Um, and so, in a way, LBJ had, I guess, I guess, a good desire of getting something in the books of law that would positively impact things going forward. Robert Moses, on the other hand, he he was a master of the law, but he really he was a master of the law and of contracts for his own benefit. And so he knew how to hide something in a contract or hide something in a law that would give him more power. And people had no idea it was happening because they 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 just wouldn't go into the fine print. And even if they had, he just worded things in a way that you could easily gloss over it and, and completely miss it. But it would allow Robert Moses to consolidate his power. And, and he did this time and time again. And... Would just kind of humiliate people because he, they would come in and say, "Hey, you can't do this. What? What do you? Wh- who do you think you are? What are you doing?" And and he would point to the law that they had helped promote or had signed, and he would say, "Oh, you, you get. You, actually, you were part of who gave me this power." And so Robert Robert Moses was just a master in that sense, and so their use of law was 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 different in the sense of of LBJ was kind of using it to to put good things forward, where, whereas Robert Moses was using it to consolidate his own power. Uh, in the issue of quid pro quo, there there were some differences in the sense that for Robert Moses, it was about being on his team or not being on his team. And so there were quid pro quos of, of, you. I do this for you, you do that for me, but it was never... You could never pin it on Robert Moses. It was it was all kind of underhand. It was it was behind the scenes, um, and and so it wasn't this. It wasn't this this easy quid pro quo whereas for lbj it it, it really was on a lot of in, in a lot of cases where he he would make it quite clear i've done this for you you are going to do this for me and then you always see uh, uh, lbj in on especially on the senate floor he would just be he'd be in people's ears whispering and he he was he was reminding them of things or he was he was tr- he was getting his way but he was he was just kind of working the room and, and whispering and, and doing these quid pro quos constantly. And, and we, we don't even know the majority of these quid pro quos because it was just him whispering in someone else's else's ear. Last difference I want to highlight is, is in the, the path to power in the, in the sense of, of this. For Robert Moses, it really did start with an idealism. And it quickly went to, the, to a prag, pragmatism. And so he wanted power for good sake. He he thought that if he had power, he could do good things. And the brilliance of Robert Caro's book, The Power Broker, about Robert Caro, and the subtitle, Robert, or sorry, about Robert Moses, the subtitle, Robert Moses and the Fall of New York, is that you see something is, is seriously off, even in that subtitle, before you even start the book. You think, Okay, Robert Moses, master builder, he, he built all these things that I know in in New York City. How, how could this be bad? And yet you see you see what went behind it. And even this desire for power for good's sake, or this starting with idealism, it can quickly go the wrong direction. For LBJ, what's interesting is is with that, Childhood poverty and humiliation, he never really had that idealism. He may have slightly had it at the very beginning before all that, but it was long gone and he was a man of pragmatism and ambition. And ambition ruled his moral compass and so you do you don't you don't start with lbj with this idealism you start with lbj with ambition and then that ambition moved to pragmatism whereas robert moses it started with idealism and then went to pragmatism just getting things done with lbj it started with ambition and then went to pragmatism whereas with robert moses he wanted power for good's sake to, to do good things lbj wanted power for power's sake he just wanted power power to further his ambition. Now into the final segment, and my one thing that I just cannot get out of my mind about these two men, and it can be best summed up in this statement, both men did what principled men were unable to do. Both men did what principled men were unable to do. In the back of one of the books about LBJ, I, I wrote uh, a, a statement, a question, a question, of just wondering what LBJ could have done with proper motives. With it not being about his ambition and furthering his ambition, what if he had taken that that just insane work ethic? What if he had taken this... You do see times where he he helps people tremendously tremendously in his life. What if all that had had the proper motives as opposed to being about furthering his ambition, of his ambition of someday reaching the presidency? But if you go down that route, you realize he would have never become president with the proper motives. He got to where he was. Through deception, he got through to where he was through a blatantly stolen election. That was just one thing. He he got to where he finally got to the presidency in ways that he wouldn't have if he had done things in a proper manner, uh, in a principled manner. And so, <laughs> what do you do with that? And, and that's one of the big questions that Carroll raises in these books. You have a Lyndon Johnson who passed the civil rights bills. He did it as a southern legislator who for most of his life had or had voted 100% against civil rights. You have Robert Moses who you look at you can look at New York City you can see his his fingerprint on the city. You can see his impact and yet he did things to get to that position. He held near absolute power for 44 years. And so if he hadn't have had that, you wouldn't have all these buildings. You wouldn't have the UN Center. You wouldn't have uh, Jones Beach. You 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 wouldn't have all these things. But the question is, would it have been worth it? What and, and what if these men had never lived? So the the question is blatant w- about Robert Moses and the power broker. Carol, Carol asks, "What if Robert Moses had never lived? What would New York be like?" And it's an interesting question. In, in you know it's it's hypothetical because we y- you can't take that back. But what if what if he had never lived? What would New York look like now? We can also ask that question about LBJ. What if he had never lived? What if uh, during his time in World War II, where he, I, I highlighted that in the episode, but he almost got into a plane that that ended up crashing. What if he had crashed during World War II and it had not come back and, and become a senator uh, and, and later vice president and later president? What if would civil rights have eventually passed? Uh, would would lbj or would a different vice president for jfk would they have kept the country together amidst an assassination we'll never know but it leads to this question of means versus ends in Gosh, that is such an important question, and I just see it everywhere, especially this year. I mean, I, th- I think that's kind of the theme of the year for me, and it came up over and over in, in these Robert Carroll books, but I'm seeing it all over the place. Uh, podcasts I listen to about uh, pastors, or you see it about politicians. Is, is it okay to have a politician who you know has done bad things, you know is doing bad things, but he is getting things passed that you like. That could be a politician in the past. It could be a politician right now. Is that okay? If the direction is bad, is can the outcome even be good? And these are really important questions to ask. And I think you, what you see in the lives of these two men is that it's not worth it. You cannot, if, if, if you have this idea of we're going to do this good end, but the direction we take to get there, the things we do to get there, the, the, the way in which we do that is unprincipled. It is, it is wrong. It is stealing election. It is deceitful. It is, it is, it is lying to get to what we want. Can the outcome ever be good? Can bad ends can bad means lead to a good end? And what you see in this book, these books, is that it's it's a nuanced question. But it it you see the devastation along the way for this supposedly good outcome. But even is that outcome even good? Are all these buildings in in the roads that Robert Mil- Moses built? Are these even good? And he had to do all this evil to, to get to these things. Is that even good? Could, you, could it even be good at the end? So key takeaways from these series of books, you have to consider someone's entire life. Things show up early. And most people miss this. Power reveals. It does not corrupt. It, it may corrupt. You may get the person that, that finally gets power and they go nuts. But usually you can see this stuff early on. And what power does actually is to reveal. Don't look at what those in power say. Look at what they've done. It's just amazing to read through lives like this and to go so in depth and, and to, to see how they were, they, everything they said was was some, some part of the truth or or just most of the time, just a straight lie to get what they wanted yet if you had looked at what they had done you would have seen you would have learned more about those people so so if it's a politician what did they vote on how did they vote um, what how were they what were they like in in high school and college and yes people can change and yes they can be redeemed but what what they were like what they voted how they voted that sort of thing is going to be is going to matter and it should matter more than what they what they say they will do or what they say they're doing. These two men were unbelievably powerful in their time. And what's startling is we hardly remember them now. That's a bold statement in the sense, uh, we all know LBJ, we've heard his name. We, we know Lyndon B. Johnson. I, I had actually never heard of Robert Moses until reading these books and with with LBJ I mean if I think back to school and we talk about civil rights and we're learning about civil rights we did not learn about civil rights through LBJ we learned about it through Martin Luther King Jr. and through other people it was not it, it was not tied to LB, LBJ and i want to read uh, this is one of the most powerful parts of these books and it comes from master of the senate the third book the pulitzer prize winner about LBJ and Here, here is, here's the quote. No one was going to remember the name of any of those men on the Senate floor. He wrote, I will read to our children, the names of every child born in Georgia in the last 40 years. And I will tell you now that they will recognize only the names of Ralph Ellison and Willie Mays and Hank Aaron. They will not know Harry Bird, Who did Mississippi put out lately that William Faulkner could talk to except Richard Wright. It is people like these who are the legislatures sorry, it is people like these who are the legislators of mankind. They are more to the point than any senator can be. Our children's children's children will remember poets, he wrote. They are unlikely to remember Lyndon Johnson. End quote. I love that. These people are the legislators of mankind, the Ralph Ellisons. The William Faulkners, the Martin Luther King Juniors; these are the these are the men that, and, and women that were pushing things forward. It was not LBJ. Some would would have eventually done it on the legal side of things, but the the people that really moved things forward, the the legislators of mankind, were were those those people impacting culture. And so what if LBJ had never lived? What if Robert Moses had never lived? What if these men using evil means to get what they wanted accomplished, whether it was for themselves or for some good idea they, they thought was, was good? Is that the way to do it or is there another way? And that is the thing that keeps coming back. Both that both men did what principled men were unable to do. All right. That's going to do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at eric at books Let me know what you thought of this episode or other ones. I also have a new way that you can support the podcast. You can uh, help me purchase books for my 2022 reading list. I'll link to that in the show notes. You can follow books of titans on Instagram or Twitter, and the website is stocked full of resources to help you find the best books and to create your own reading list. I'll be back in two weeks to discuss another book or series for my 2021 reading list. So until then, keep reading, keep learning, and keep listening. I'm out.